This is White Widow, a Vespucci story written by Alexandra Bradford and me, Samira Shackle, narrated by Caroline Ford. The White Widow has been described as the world's most wanted woman. For 15 years, she's been spotted like a phantom at the location of terror attacks around the world. A British woman with pale skin and blue eyes in full Islamic dress. A harbinger of terror. The headlines in the British tabloid press are a litany of crimes. White widow Samantha Luthwaite has killed 400 people in reign of terror against the West. White widow Samantha Luthwaite now commands an army of 200 jihadi widow spies who call her the mother of holy war. White widow Samantha Luthwaite marries ruthless terror chief on the run in lawless Somalia. In 2014, The Sun claimed she had plastic surgery to evade capture. In 2018, the Daily Mail warned that she was recruiting suicide bombers to attack Spanish beaches this summer. Breaking news, we're getting reports of an explosion outside Liverpool Street Station in the east end of London. It's the Samantha Luthwaite first gained notoriety in 2005 as the widow of one of the bombers in London's 7-7 suicide attacks eyewitnesses say there was a bang heard during rush hour and officers are attending the scene. After a few years out of the public eye, she left the UK and moved to Kenya, where she's been linked with a spree of vicious terror attacks. In September 2013, the upmarket Westgate Mall in Nairobi was attacked by masked gunmen, militants from the Somali group Al-Shabaab. This morning, armed terrorists are reportedly holding roughly a dozen hostages in this supermarket inside the Westgate Mall. They killed more than 60 people and fought with police for several days. Amid the terror and the carnage, some bystanders claim to have seen a white woman with a gunman. 10 to 15 terrorists, including women, attacked the mall wearing black tactical clothing and ski masks. The reports were taken seriously enough that the Kenyan foreign minister suggested a British woman was involved in the attack. Interpol issued a warrant for Samantha's arrest, on charges going back several years, including possession of explosives. Although there was no evidence for her involvement in the Westgate attack, and subsequent reports cast doubt on these sightings, the narrative took on a life of its own. In the world's media, Samantha was described as a leader of Al-Shabaab and the mastermind of the Westgate attack. Since then, she's become something akin to a mythical figure, appearing in the most unlikely places, from Syria to Somalia, South Africa to Ukraine. It's a compelling story. The suburban girl from an unremarkable British town who transforms into an international terrorist mastermind. But is it true? Samantha's story raises questions about radicalization, the fetishization of female criminals, and the tabloid media's hunger for monsters. What is the reality behind the myth of the White Widow? And can we ever really know? To try to answer that question, let's go back to the start. There are some incontrovertible facts, things we know for sure. Samantha was born in 1983 in Bambridge, a small town in Northern Ireland, 25 miles southwest of Belfast, where the troubles were raging. In the 1970s, Samantha's father had been a soldier in the British Army, which was engaged in an informal war against Irish Republicans. Samantha spent her first years in Whiteacres, a residential area of Bambridge populated by identical beige stucco homes. It's a small town where everyone seems to know everyone. 
but Samantha's former neighbours recall neither Samantha nor her family. When told about Samantha's alleged crimes in connection to her hometown, residents show muted surprise, as though the constant threat of terrorism during the Troubles has left them weary of such stories. When she was still very young, the Luthwaites left Northern Ireland and settled in Aylesbury, a town in southern England. Aylesbury is not far from London, though its atmosphere feels a million miles away. Resting in the foot of the Chiltern Hills, it's a run-of-the-mill market town, which attracts people in large part due to its affordable housing. Streets of red brick terraces stretch out, row after row. There was nothing in Samantha's childhood to suggest what would come later. According to people who knew her growing up, she was a well-liked but unremarkable kid. Local councillor Nicknam Hussein met Samantha a few times when she was young and knew some of her teachers. He said, There was nothing you could point out and say, this girl is amazingly intelligent or amazingly contributive in the class or has a particular worldview. I spoke to her teachers and they said, Lovely child, growing up very normal, fair to middling academically, fair to middling in everything else, just a normal person. In 2001... Samantha attended the end-of-year ball for her school in Aylesbury. In a photo from the event, Samantha's face is bright and rosy, her eyes as sparkly as the diamante tiara that sits on her head. She's wearing a pink satin gown with a cream-cropped cardigan. Her chunky glitter eyeshadow, thin eyebrows and deep coral lip gloss are on trend for the early 2000s. She looks like any other teenage girl, dressed up and excited for the evening ahead there's nothing to suggest that she would soon be radically distanced from her peers. Samantha's home life was sometimes difficult. Her parents divorced in 1994 when she was 11. She took this hard and spent more and more time with her neighbours, a Muslim family of Pakistani origin. The family was devoutly religious, but according to people who knew them, they were not extremist. Nicknam Hussein remembers a welcoming environment at Samantha's neighbours. The mother was a quite well-known personality in that she kept an open house. You just walk in, there'll be a zoo of people there all the time, friends of the boys or the girls, relatives. It was a very warm, kind of buzzing household all the time. Hussein wondered if maybe Samantha saw the kind of stable background she wanted for herself. When Samantha was 17, she converted to Islam a decision apparently motivated by her friendship with this family. She had been raised Christian and her family didn't approve. Her father in particular was upset, but she was determined. She started to wear a hijab, got an A in her A-level religious studies and won a place at the University of London to study politics and religion. It seemed that her life was just beginning. It appeared to back sharply and smash directly perhaps purposefully, into, oh my goodness, oh God. there's another one. Samantha converted in 2001, the year that two planes flew into the Twin Towers in New York and changed the course of history. In the aftermath of 9-11, anti-war marches around the UK attracted hundreds of thousands of people. In 2002, Samantha attended a march held by the campaign group Stop the War in London's Hyde Park, that was where she met someone who would have a profound impact on the direction of her life. Jermaine Lindsay was two years younger than her, 
another Muslim convert. He'd grown up in Huddersfield in northern England, raised by Jamaican immigrant parents and converted to Islam in his teens. Samantha was lovestruck. Speaking to a newspaper a few years later, she said they were like two peas in a pod and described him as the world's best husband. Within a few months, she dropped out of university and on the 30th of October 2002, they were married. Samantha's parents, still struggling with her conversion, did not attend. The couple rented a house on Aylesbury's Northern Road. It was not long before they had their first child. Aylesbury is only 36 miles from London, and the couple were involved with political and religious groups in the capital. London had a tense atmosphere in the years that followed 9-11. Hate crimes against Muslims spiked, as did tabloid scare stories about terrorism. On campuses around the city, Muslim student groups were more active than ever, as a generation of young people found that their identity had been politicised. Within these groups, arguments were breaking out about what it meant to be Muslim. Zakir Hussein, a young British Somali woman, was studying in London at the time. We were dealing with backlash from the community, suspicion from the government, suspicion from the universities, Zakir recalls. Jermaine and Samantha were somewhat conspicuous in Aylesbury. Unlike most Muslims in the town, they were not South Asian. But apart from that, they looked from the outside like a normal Muslim family. In 2005, the couple were expecting their second child. Nicknam Hussein, as a local councillor, remembers advising them on a housing issue. That summer, he met Jermaine at a local mosque. He was the quietest person in the group, relaxed, chilled, just at Friday prayers, baby on the way. Today, Nicknam sees that memory in a different light because of what happened next. If you said, here's a million pounds, put a bet on that he's going to blow himself up in a matter of days, I'd say, save your money. In the early morning on the 7th of July 2005, Jermaine met three associates and got on a train to London. Soon after 8.45am, they split up onto different underground trains from King's Cross Station in the centre of London. The tube was packed with commuters. At 8.49am, as Jermaine's train approached Russell Square, he detonated his suicide bomb in a coordinated attack with the other three men. He killed himself and 26 innocent bystanders. In total, four bombs went off around London, killing 52 people and injuring many more. Samantha was eight months pregnant. The bombings had a seismic effect. We condemn utterly these barbaric attacks. Those responsible have no respect for human life. Just a few years after 9-11, it was the first major Islamist terror attack to happen in the UK. Through the 1980s and 1990s, the city had become accustomed to the threat of bombings by the IRA, a war that Samantha's father had fought in. But this represented something different. A global battle that politicians described in sweeping existential terms. Samantha was quiet at first. It took a week for her to report her husband missing. And when she did, she claimed to know nothing about the attacks. The bombings dominated the news for weeks. In the London offices of Britain's frenetic tabloid press, the pressure was on for new angles. 
the tabloids, the Daily Mail, the Sun, the Daily Mirror, the Daily Express, have an almost personal relationship with their readers. Like the straight-talking friend at a pub who tells it like it is, doesn't care about political correctness. They have an outsized role in British public life, setting the national agenda with relentless, sensational coverage of politics, celebrity and scandal, written to entertain as much as to report. They sell millions of copies every day. But as sales began to drop through the 2000s, the pressure only intensified. Whenever there's a major incident, like the 7-7 bombings, we want the scoop, the inside story, something that you're not going to get on the TV broadcasts, says one former Daily Mail reporter. The natural thing, of course, was to try to talk to the families, the people left behind, and the fact that Samantha was this white English girl made it even stranger. Journalists descended on Aylesbury, trying to track down Samantha, who was in a safe house, and her family. Graham Dudman, managing editor of The Sun at the time, later remembered, the world and his wife was trying to get an interview with the family. Some papers had 12 journalists up there trying to find her. In the end, it was a reporter from his paper, The Sun, that got the exclusive. Jamie Pyatt, now a senior news reporter for The Sun and a 30-year veteran of the paper, became the only known journalist to have interviewed Samantha. In the days following the bombings, Jamie was tasked with uncovering everything he could about Samantha and Jermaine. Having unmasked Samantha's identity, he began pursuing people close to her, eventually making contact with her estranged father, who reluctantly agreed to speak to his daughter about participating in an interview. A few days passed, and Mr. Luthwaite called Jamie back. Samantha was interested in talking. The stage was set for Jamie's much-anticipated interview with Samantha, Alongside Sun photographer Mark Giddings, he was to do a series of meetings in rented cottages on a remote country estate, chosen to hopefully preserve the exclusivity of the story. It was quite the scoop, and Jamie was feeling the pressure. Everybody wanted to talk to her, he remembers. Everybody wanted to find her. Everybody had been searching for her for months and months. And now he had to deliver. Their initial meeting took place in a historical manor house in the Cotswolds once home to a local baron, seemed a more fitting locale for a romantic tryst or a period film. But instead, it would briefly house Jamie, Mark, Samantha and her newborn baby, and Samantha's mother. Jamie remembers Samantha's entrance as striking. She arrived around lunchtime via taxi cab, emerging from the car in a full burqa and causing a proverbial record scratch. Diners paused mid-bite, lunchgoers stared, heads turned to one chilly point of focus. Who was this outsider? Jamie spent the next several days with Samantha, attempting to earn her trust. Without other means of transportation, Samantha relied on Jamie and the photographer Mark Giddings to fetch everything she needed. She would say, Can you go to the local town? Can you get me some videos? I want to watch something. She would watch Mad Max movies or anything with Mel Gibson in it, and asked for a steady supply of fast food. Jamie found himself fetching fried chicken for the young woman who would become the country's most sought-after, divisive and sensationalised individual. It's possible that this handful of days at the cottages was an oasis of calm for Samantha, who was otherwise under extreme pressure. Since the 7-7 bombings, her own house had been firebombed, She was put into protective custody, consequently sleeping on concrete floors and in attic apartments, 
as she attempted to convince not only the police, but everyone around her, her family, her friends, of her innocence in a crime that resulted in the death of 52 people. The police and the public had questions for Samantha. Many questions. And it was Jamie's job to ask them. During their interviews, Jamie recalls that Samantha was composed and stoic, undeviating from the path of conversation that she was determined to take. She revealed that in the days leading up to the bombing, her husband Jermaine's behaviour had become so erratic that she suspected he was having an affair. She told Jamie she had no idea what he was planning. She said she abhorred everything Jermaine had done and dreaded the day her children would be old enough that she'd have to tell them that their father was a terrorist. In the months leading up to the tabloid interview, Samantha had been extensively interrogated by the police. No official suspicion had been cast on Samantha at all in regard to her involvement in the 7-7 bombings. And by the time of their meeting, Jamie was ready to accept the conclusion of the authorities. He had no reason to distrust her telling of the events. Her story was very, very plausible. And Jamie believed her. On the 23rd of September, Jamie's interview with Samantha splashed across the front page of the sun with a photograph of her in a light blue hijab. She gazes down at the infant daughter she's cradling in her arms. In contrast to the photo of Samantha at her school ball taken just a couple years earlier, Samantha is makeupless and pale. The broad smile of her younger self is gone. In the story, she describes hearing Jermaine go into their son's room the night he left. He kissed our child goodbye and then crept off to blow up King's Cross. In the morning, I found he'd left the keys on the table downstairs. He obviously had no more use for them. Referring to her husband as Jamal, the name he took on after his conversion, she said, Jamal is accountable for his actions 100%, and I condemn with all my heart what he's done. I will try to remember for my children's sake the Jamal I loved and raise them knowing their father was a man who truly loved them. But the day will come when I'll have to tell them what he did. Her parting thought was a plea for understanding. I worry about my safety and that of my children, but I just hope people will understand I had nothing to do with this. We are victims as well. The first edition of the newspaper, which was printed at night, ran with a fake front page so that other papers wouldn't have time to put together their own story before the morning editions. The Sun then copyrighted the text and photos of the final edition to ensure exclusivity. The scoop was theirs. The story painted a portrait of a young widowed mother, bereaved and confused about her future. But perhaps predictably, the story was immediately controversial, not least because The Sun had paid Samantha £30,000 for the interview. A few days later, the Yorkshire Post gave voice to these concerns. For very good and obvious reasons, there is a law against any criminal profiting from his illegal activities by selling his story to a newspaper. And while the letter of the law has not been broken on this occasion, Miss Luthwaite is not a criminal, its spirit has clearly been breached. In the Middle East, many suicide bombings have been spurred on by the promise of funds from individuals and organisations to look after the family of the so-called martyr. It would be regrettable if any potential terrorists in this country took comfort from the knowledge that their dependents would benefit from lucrative newspaper deals. It's never been entirely clear how much Samantha knew about Jermaine's plans. Was she the wronged wife she claimed to be, sympathetic to the plot but not directly involved? Or was she an active participant, 
What we do know is that it was not just Jermaine who'd fraternised with various extremist figures in the run-up to the bombing. It emerged later that Samantha had met Mohammed Sadiq Khan, the ringleader of the 7-7 attacks. Reportedly, in the period after the attacks, she was looking for another husband within radical Islamist circles. It emerged later that she was in contact with Abdullah al-Faisal, a radical Jamaican preacher, and by some accounts, he introduced her to her second husband. It is also clear that she was on the radar of the security services and that she suffered some repercussions for her husband's actions. She told friends she was being watched. Speaking to The Sun in 2013, Jermaine's mother, Mariam McLeod Ismail, recalled hearing from Samantha in this period. She would send me emails after we buried my son, saying people were terrorising her and giving her a hard time. She said she had problems with people taking photos of her. She would call and never say where she was, and the calls were always under five minutes. With the money Samantha received from The Sun and her positive portrayal in the article, in which various law enforcement agencies apparently confirmed her innocence, it seemed as though Samantha had a path out of the ugliness she'd lived through these past seven months. Maybe she could finally move forward and repair her relationship with her family, who seemed eager to bring her back into the fold, back into the fair to middling way of life that she once knew. But was that what Samantha wanted? It is possible, just about, to piece together these details of Samantha's early life, her family, her conversion, her marriage. But after the 7-7 bombings and her interview with The Sun, the details become murkier, slightly out of reach, like pieces of a puzzle that have scattered and can't quite be put back together. In fact, after 2005, Samantha almost entirely disappeared from public view. It would be six or seven years before she resurfaced. And when she did, it would not be as Samantha Luthwaite, but as the White Widow. Let's start with what we do know. In the summer of 2008, Samantha left the UK. She had remarried, although there is some disagreement about who exactly her new husband was. A few years later, in 2013, the Daily Telegraph reported that she had married Habib Salaghani, a British-Pakistani radical. A year later, the same paper said her husband was Abdi Wahid, a former Kenyan naval officer who defected to al-Shabaab. It isn't clear. On leaving the UK, Samantha went to South Africa with her husband and children. In Johannesburg, she had a third child. According to Kenyan police, she entered Kenya in late 2011 using a fake passport under the name Natalie Faye Webb. She set up home in the coastal city of Mombasa with her new husband and three children. In December 2011, Kenyan police received intelligence that a terror cell was planning attacks that would target hotels and tourists in Mombasa over the Christmas period. They raided a property in Mombasa and arrested Jermaine Grant also known as Ali Mohamed Ibrahim, a 29-year-old British Muslim convert of Jamaican origin from London. At the apartment, police found chemicals similar to those used in the 7-7 bombings. The nature and amount of weapons recovered in that house, it would mean that the intentions must have been sinister. Grant was charged with possession of bomb-making materials and preparing to commit a felony. The apartment was rented by a British woman, Her name was Natalie Faye Webb. When police arrived, she had already fled. But later, when he was questioned by police, Grant said that the woman was the leader of the cell and confirmed that her real name was Samantha Luthwaite. The following month, 
Kenyan police issued a warrant for Samantha's arrest. The warrant alleged that she was in possession of explosives and was intending to kill innocent civilians in Mombasa in this foiled terror plot. Interpol named her as a person of interest, requiring its 190-member countries to apprehend her on site. This immediately catapulted Samantha back into the media spotlight. While all the evidence points to her having some involvement in this conspiracy, it is unclear in what capacity. Was she really the mastermind, the leader of the cell, as Grant alleged? Or was she in a supporting role, paying the rent on the house that was forming the operational base? Samantha's movements after this remain uncertain. Some say she fled to Somalia and remarried again, this time to a leader in Al-Shabaab, but it's impossible to verify whether this happened or not. In June 2012, football fans were packed into the Jericho Bar in Mombasa, watching the Euro 2012 game between England and Italy. Terrorists threw a grenade into the establishment, killing three people. There was a commotion. People were running elter-skelterly to, to save their lives. The papers alleged that Samantha was involved, although again it is unclear whether this is true. In what would become a running theme, much of the coverage was sensationalist and bordered on the speculative. Soon after the grenade attack, the Daily Mail suggested, with scant evidence, that Samantha was the author of an anonymous blog called Fears and Tears, Confessions of a Female Mujahid. The paper said, Security sources believe it to be the work of soldier's daughter Luthwaite and that it is her first contact with the outside world since she fled to Africa with her three young children. This was one of the first articles to describe her as the white widow of a 7-7 London bomber. The name, as well as being a descriptor of Samantha as the white-skinned widow of a suicide bomber, played off the term black widow, used by Chechen terrorists to describe women who take part in bombings and assaults after the death of their husbands. The myth was taking root. When they raided the Mombasa flat, police seized a computer. Information on that hard drive led them to a flat in Nairobi where Samantha had been living. She had left, but they found her laptop and some notebooks. The laptop showed that she had been looking up how to make bombs. From here we will connect the pipe to the cell. She'd also spent time reading about diets and hair and beauty tips. It just evens out your skin tone and gives you this soft glow. Apparently on the same day she researched making pipe bombs, she downloaded books on burning fat fast. There was also a 34-line poem written by Samantha titled Ode to Osama, written after bin Laden was killed by American forces. It included lines such as, O Sheikh Osama, now that you are gone, the Muslims must wake up, they must be strong. A handwritten note said, Alhamdulillah, Allah has blessed me with being married to a mujahid and meeting many wonderful, inspiring people along the way. These papers clearly show that she was radicalised but they do not tell us anything about her role in planning attacks or her level of seniority in any terror groups. On the 21st of September 2013, gunmen descended on the Westgate Mall in Nairobi. Witnesses say the terrorists were on a mission to kill non-Muslims, ordering shoppers to speak Arabic or recite a verse from the Quran in order to save their lives. The violence of the attack, the international clientele at the mall, and the long-lasting gun battle with police all conspired to make this horrific attack a global media event. Samantha had already been a fixture in the British press for some months, and now reported sightings of a white woman at Westgate sent them into overdrive. 
Has British White Widow been killed in final assault on Kenyan shopping mall? Body of white woman terrorist is found at scene. Screamed the Daily Mail headline on the 24th of September as the battle between police and militants continued to rage. Did the White Widow order attack? The same paper asked. Woman who looked like White Widow sprayed machine gun bullets at me during Kenyan mall massacre, says shop worker. To date, the Daily Mail has run around 350 stories on Samantha. By the end of 2013, the Kenyan authorities had ruled out Samantha's involvement in the Westgate shooting. But by then, the myth had taken on a life of its own. In the years that had passed since the 7-7 bombings, the media landscape had changed. Newsrooms had gone digital. At the tabloids, that meant that the pressure for sensational scoops that had always existed was turbocharged by a need for clicks. News was often made hastily with the daily pressure of print deadlines replaced by a relentless drive to post new stories, with limited time for the kind of pavement-pounding journalism for which the tabloids are famous. Someone might ring up or email with a tip, or maybe we see something on one of the wire services or another newspaper, explains a former Sun journalist. An editor gives you the story and tells you what angle to take, and now the pressure's on to get it written up. You've got an hour. What are you really going to add? At best, a quote from an expert, if that. It's sloppy, but you don't really have a choice. That's how stories that are barely fact-checked make it up and proliferate across different papers. The Leveson Inquiry in 2011-12, a major public inquiry which looked at tabloid overreach, found multiple instances where stories were straightforwardly fabricated with quotes, sources, or entire stories invented. In one revealing exchange, The Daily Star's editor, Dawn Neeson, was asked whether her reporters spin, embroider and weave around the edges of a story. She responded, I wouldn't quite put it in those words, but as I say, it's written in a style that we know works for our readers. Alongside this sloppiness was a growing appetite for stories about Muslims, particularly ones that pertain to extremism or terrorism, and even better if they followed a stock format the unlikely extremist or the fraudster imam. Speaking about being told to rewrite stories with an anti-Muslim line, one anonymous reporter told the inquiry, This didn't stop, even when I was in tears because I hated what I was being forced to do passionately. The journalist, Richard Pepiat, who quit the Daily Star in 2011 over its hate-mongering against Muslims, told Leveson that the newspaper knowingly published made-up stories and quotes. I think people can overstate the bigotry. There was no explicit plan to ham up stories about terrorism or whatever. But you know what sells. You know what the paper stance is. And you know what your readers want, said the former Sun journalist. That's stories about terrorism. Scandal. Even better if a woman's involved and you can include pictures. The Samantha Luthwaite story ticks so many of those boxes. In April 2015... Samantha was linked with the deaths of 148 people in a terrorist attack on a university in Kenya. Some media outlets claimed that from 2014 she was based in Somalia and from this base was masterminding killings in Kenya. Others alleged that she was bringing female terror recruits from Yemen to Somalia. But at the same time as she was supposedly coordinating a string of vicious attacks from Somalia, other media reports placed her in Ukraine, where she was allegedly killed by pro-Russian rebels. It's unclear what she would have been doing fighting in Donbas, decidedly not an Islamist conflict. Still, other reports situated her in Syria fighting with the Islamic State. Again, there was no evidence for these claims. 
Perhaps the most consistently repeated line is that she ascended to a leadership role in Al-Shabaab and that the group is protecting her in territory they control in Somalia. But there seems to be little evidence for this. Zakia Hussein, the British Somali woman who was studying in London at the same time as Samantha, is now a brigadier general in the Somali police. She lives under threat of death from Al-Shabaab and has been personally targeted numerous times. One of the key reasons why Al-Shabaab has been trying to kill me is because I am a female leader, and that goes against everything that they believe in, she says. So it's highly unlikely that they would actually place a woman within their own leadership. It doesn't ring true to her that Samantha would be in a senior position. The group is not only patriarchal, but nationalistic. Having a foreigner join them in a high rank does not sit very well with them. Over the years, various investigations, including a 2014 BBC documentary, have concluded that although Samantha is clearly involved with terrorist groups in some capacity, there is no evidence that she is a leader. Zakia agrees with this assessment. I think she probably played a recruitment and logistical role rather than being a mastermind. That would certainly fit with what Nicknam Hussein remembers of Samantha in childhood. Not particularly strong-minded or intelligent. Not a leader, but someone more likely to be led. As verifiable facts about Samantha dried up, the stories about her have only proliferated. Not much has changed in the British tabloid media. If anything, the trend towards sensationalism has only increased as circulation has dropped. In 2018, Parliament convened a committee about disproportionately negative coverage of British Muslims. A shock-jock Muslim story on the front page sells papers, the former Conservative Party chair Sayida Wasi told the committee. It's easy to see why stories about Samantha sell against this backdrop. It's impossible to say with any certainty whether Samantha is still alive. Documentation is hard to come by and her family and friends are reluctant to talk after years of media harassment. Outside her brother's house in Aylesbury, there are security cameras. A knock on the door by a journalist gets a polite refusal to talk about Samantha and a swiftly closed door. Sabrina Luthwaite, Samantha's sister, has a clear disdain for the press. Her Facebook page is littered with images and comments railing against the tabloids. In 2014, with Samantha's name rarely out of the tabloids, Sabrina posted a Malcolm X quote. If you're not careful, the newspapers will have you hating the people who are being oppressed and loving the people who are doing the oppressing. A steady drip of stories about the White Widow continue to appear, sometimes on very spurious grounds. A recent story about face recognition technology that could identify faces through masks was spun by more than one British tabloid into a White Widow angle. Hope to snare White Widow as new facial recognition tech sees through burkas, said the Mirror headline. By now, the narrative has truly become entrenched, even when facts on the ground are sparse. Is she dead? Is she alive? Regardless of what has happened to Samantha Luthwaite, the myth of the White Widow lives on. <laughs>